0: Happy Labor Day to everybody. Hopefully you're having a great weekend, enjoying the life of, um, well, the weather isn't so great right now, but family and friends, good food, maybe lakes and boats and football games and whatever it may be, and today we get to gather. You guys ready for this Song of Solomon this early in the morning? (laughs) Thanks to uh, Will, if you were here last week, um... In fact, I'm just really grateful for all the guys that I'm um, teaching with right now. It's just fun to see uh, the men that God is raising up, and the Will Weatherheads, and the Dan Mikes, and the Brandon Hurts, I mean, they don't grow on trees, and I hope you guys are as grateful as I am for just the blessing of, of, of having uh, them in our church. Now, if, if, if you already started reading this book last week, you, or have read it at any point in ...time in your life, you realize this is a pretty complicated book. It's beautiful. It's spectacular. In fact, the very title, Song of Songs... ...suggests that this is the greatest of songs. And the greatest of songs, when you read it... ...you find out that it's a love song. It's this interplay between two voices. The voice of a he and the voice of a she... With with a few interjections from the community who are watching this he and the she. Or better yet, they're gawking. Because I think there are two things that make a person a spectacle to the watching world. One is suffering. We've talked a lot about suffering this summer. Those who suffer, we can't help but watch them. But the other reality that I think that causes us to gawk are two people in love. And when we see it, we can't help but stare and gawk. In fact, Proverbs 30, I think, picks up on this. It says, he says, there are three things that are too amazing for me, too wonderful for me, and four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Uh, it's a wonder, the way of a he with a she, a man with his bride. And that's what this, this song is, first and foremost. It's, it's the expression of the wonder of love, of two people in love who, who sing of their intense desire and longing for the other. And if you've read this, you, you know that the desire that, that's described, it's so much more than just romantic desire, it's, it's arousal, it's sensual, it's erotic, it's sexual desire. And here's what I want us to know, it's expressed not in a carnal way, but almost in a holy way. And I don't know if we think of our desires as, as, as holy, especially our sexual desires, but God's word, through the song of Solomon, teaches us otherwise. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice if, if you read this book carefully is it's her voice as opposed to his voice that's the dominant voice. Her voice begins the song, her voice ends the song, And her voice sets the whole tone for this song. And much of her voice is her speaking of her arousal and her desires. Her desires for him. In fact, the first verse, look at the very first verse. The first verse, actually, in your Bibles is not the first verse. It's actually the second verse. The first verse is just to tell us that this is the song of songs. And it's written... To Solomon, for Solomon, or maybe by Solomon. Just like in the Psalms you have, this is a Psalm of David, we don't attach a verse to that. So the Psalm begins really with verse 2, and it's, it's her voice. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Are you guys awake this morning or not? <laughs> I forgot to say that this might be a little bit PG, um, so at any time, um, if you want to just take your kids somewhere, that's totally fine. Um, but here's this first verse, may he kiss me the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. In fact, this word for love, where it says your love is better than wine, it's, it's a specific Hebrew word for love. It's, it's not ahav, which is the generic word for love, it's dodim. And dodim is the equivalent of our expression making love. In fact, if you go to uh, 7 verse 13, just quickly uh, go there, you'll see uh, this word mandrakes. Mandrakes in the Hebrew is dodi. In the ancient world, dodi or mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. You. Eat the mandrakes, the dodee, for the purpose of dodeem. Lovemaking. In fact, we have a whole story in the Bible about this with Leah and Rachel, two sisters who are married to Jacob. and They're both fighting for Jacob's affection. And it's the wheat harvest. It's spring. It's the time for love. And one of Leah's sons harvests some of these mandrakes, these dodee. She brings them back to her mother. Here, Mom. <laughs> And Rachel finds out, and there's a fight over what? The mandrakes. Listen, the Bible is not a prudish book. Song of Songs alone, when you read it, you can see how unprudish the Bible is. Let me just think about this. God wrote this book. In a book that God wrote, one of the chapters is called The Song of Songs, and the greatest of songs in his book is about arousal and its intense sexual desire. Who invented sex? God did. Who made our bodies in such a way for sex? God. Who put these desires within us? God. And see, there are some Christians who think that sexual desire is the result of sin. It's the result of living in a fallen world. But when God made the world, his final and crowning act of creation was Eve, woman. Trust me. When Adam saw Eve, he was like, whoa. Come on, guys. Great spot for an amen. And you know how it ends? Creation? Creation ends with sex. And the two shall become one flesh. Think about that. The grand finale, the grand culmination of creation is a he and a she in Dodim. In fact, you could say the the, the, the song of songs describes the garden. It describes Adam and Eve and their love for each other. So this isn't post-fall, this is Eden. In fact, does anybody know what Eden means? Eden simply means pleasure. And a substantial amount of the pleasure of Eden is sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. But here's what we also need to know. What does God create or establish just before the creation of sex? Well, first he, he, he plants a garden. The garden, of course, is more than a garden, but it's a temple. This is where God is going to dwell. And then he places Adam in this garden. He names this garden Eden because it's here where Adam and God get to live together in intimate friendship. And we need to know this, too, is Eden. It is, it is a pleasurable thing to walk with God in the cool of the day, to know him. But it's also here that God, not Adam, God notices that something is missing. Not good. Adam is alone. So God corrects this. He causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and God creates from Adam's side a she. He names her Eve. And what follows the creation of the this, of this she is essentially the first wedding ceremony because God walks Eve to Adam and then says, I want you to cleave to each other. And this word cleave means to make a covenant. A covenant is more than a promise. A covenant is a promise that a person will literally die to keep it. And see, now it's in the context of this, of two people in covenant, that we have Dodim. The two becoming one flesh. We need to know this. That creation ends with consummation. The sex between two lovers. Two covenant makers. That's Eden. Because Eden is the place where two people walk intimately arm in arm with God. And it's also the place where two lovers enjoy the arms of each other. And see, this is where so many Christians today have gone wrong because we have such a prudish view towards sex and therefore a low view of sex. Sex is not simply a function to produce children. Sex is not dirty. Sex is the creation of God. It's a gift from God. And see, it's our Western Platonic dualistic view of the world that we like to apply to our text that tells us that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And therefore, because sex is a big part of the body, sex becomes bad and that our sexual desires inherently are bad. This is why in the Christian tradition, even marriage was sometimes seen as being less spiritual than being celibate. It's why church fathers like Origen uh, made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. It's why Jerome taught that if a man loves his wife too much, he's an adulterer. Even Augustine fell in line with this thinking. My old pastor used to say, can I get that for you? (laughs) Someone's phone was going off. Um. Anyway, I'm telling you what, when we start thinking this way, um, I think we're taking ourselves and our spiritual, spirituality way too seriously. But even more than that, we're starting to think unbiblically. Because to actually think that one of the most beautiful things that God created is dirty, that our bodies are somehow dirty, what an insult that is to our maker. There's nothing dirty about sex. There's nothing shameful about our desires. I'm telling you what, this was a game changer for me. I spent much of my life shaming my desires. Now listen, we need to tame them, but we are not to shame them. And see, where Christians maybe have gone with their prudish uh, attitude, Towards sex, our culture has gone wrong in its permissiveness in making too much of sex. I mean, we all know what's going on today. There are absolutely no restraints on sex. Everything today is about sex. Our schools today in our education, it's about sex. Our workplace has become about sex. Politics has become about sex. Sports is all about sex. And what we have forgotten is that God has made sex for a specific place and a specific purpose. God designed sex for marriage and marriage for sex. There is no love making, though deem, without their first being covenant making. I mean, this is as basic as the laws of Gravity. Think about how difficult it would be for anyone right now to live against the law of gravity. I mean, we all just accept this law as fact. We have to, because we know that things that come up will come down, and to live our life outside of that law, I mean, I can't just take my cell phone and just throw it. I throw it up, it's gonna come down. I can't throw my kids up in the air without knowing they're gonna come down. We just know this. Yeah. It's the same with sex and marriage. We don't get to rewrite God's established rules that God has put within the whole created order and just think that everything is going to be fine and okay. And listen, God has not only placed sex in marriage, he's placed sex in marriage in the garden where husband and wife walk together with God in the cool of the day, where a he and a she experience all the pleasures of God and together enjoy all the pleasures of Dodim. That's why if you read the Song of Sol- Solomon, um, the garden motif is a strong one in this book. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Awake, north wind, ruach, spirit, and come south, ruach, and blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere, and let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. In verse one of the next chapter, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice, I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey, and I have drunk my wine, and my milk. God made us for love. God made us for Eden. God made us for pleasure. God made us for marriage. That's why we feel these desires. That's why sometimes there's this intense ache within us. Look at chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, and this is the voice of the she. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and its squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchmen found me, and as they made their rounds in the city, I said to him, have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely I passed them. When I found the one my heart loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house to the room of the one I was conceived. That's desire. That's longing. There's an ache in her heart. And see, what sin has done is it's perverted our desires. It's perverted our aches. And then when you add to that a permissive culture that says we are free to indulge in anything our eyes desire, all this equals things like sexual addictions and rape and sexual abuse and affairs, trafficking, this massive wake of hurt and woundedness. Where women are left degraded, where children are degraded and humiliated and oftentimes wounded, where men have become so lowly Instead of being the knights that God made them to be, they become perverts. In fact, in the last month alone in the New York Times, the New York, this is the New York Times, this is not Christianity today, they're finally starting to recognize that there's a real problem on our college campuses with rape. Some say one out of five girls... We'll go to college to not just get a degree but get raped one out of five and they say only 40 percent have reported it this from the new york times she was 18 years old a freshman who had been on campus for just two weeks when one saturday night last september her friends grew weary because she had been drinking and suddenly disappeared around midnight this missing girl texted a friend saying i'm scared by this guy that I met. And then she says, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. Her friend called her. When she did not answer the call, the friend began searching for her. In the early morning hours on the campus of Hobart and William Smith College, one of the prestigious liberal arts universities in New York, the friend said he found her bent over a pool table as a football player sexually assaulted her with eight of his friends watching and taking pictures. Two weeks later, another article from from the New York Times. In the debate over sexual violence on college campuses, two things are reasonably clear. First, campus rape is a grave, persistent problem in all campuses, liberal arts and state schools. Second, listen to what they say. Nobody, neither anti-rape activists, nor their critics, nor the administrators, or anyone in the university, or anyone caught in between, seems to have a clear, compelling idea. What to do about it? Of course not. This is what happens when we stop listening to God in His Word. Look at Proverbs 7. Just turn there. Men, you ought to be regularly reading, and you know what? Women too. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Proverbs 7, beginning with verse 12. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurked. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, Today I've fulfilled my vows, I have food. From my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. The word there is Dodim too. Let's enjoy ourselves with Dodim. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse and filled his money. And now we will be home till full moon. With persuasive words she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. He followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow arrow pierces his liver, not knowing. It's going to cost him his life. And I read this and I ask myself, what's the difference between this woman in Proverbs 7 and the woman in the Song of Songs as it's described in chapter three because both are aroused, both are full of desire, both are taking their desire into the, into the streets, into the city to find love. What's the difference? There's one significant difference, it's called marriage. One is taking her desire to just anyone who will satisfy and the other is seeking her husband. Again, it's not because sex is bad or that our desires are bad. It's because no one wants to listen to God. And the moment we think that God's word and his ways are a joke, we are in danger of becoming a joke. I mean, listen to what it says in Proverbs About the end result of the one who indulges in this outside of the context in which God has said marriage and covenant. Proverbs 6, verse 32. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Destroys himself. Proverbs 7, we just read it. And look at the end of Proverbs 7. Listen to what he says. Do not let your, your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her hi- house is a highway to the grave. Leading down to the chambers of death. Alright, I know Will applied this last week, but I want to apply it further. I want to start with those who are single. I don't care how old or young you are. My word is this. Listen to God. I plead with you to not fall prey to the lies of our world. Because when you look at our world, sex has just become another commodity. It's almost like buying groceries. It's been cheapened to the point where it's on par with McDonald's or Wendy's. And in the process, women have been cheapened. Men have become so much less. Sex without marriage has been an utter disaster. It's wrecked lives. It's wrecked marriages. It's wrecked families. It's wrecked kids. In fact, I think it has single-handedly wrecked our whole nation. And so ladies, this morning, if if you're here and you're single, I plead with you to show respect to yourself. Show respect to your body. If you can't respect your body, even in the way that you dress, no one else will. I'll share a secret with you straight from a man. Men like to play with the easy ones, but they marry the self-respectful ones. In fact, it's right in this song. Look at chapter 4, Song of Songs, verse 12. Every single woman here ought to memorize this verse. This is what he is saying to his his beloved. He says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. That's part of the reason why he loves her so much. That's part of the reason why he desires so much, because she respects herself. She respects her garden, and she closes it she says "Looky, no touchy women please parents i have something to say to you i'm starting to realize more and more that our job as parents is not just to raise up raise up men our job is to raise up husbands and our job is not just to raise up women our job is to raise up wives i say it so unapologetically today that doesn't make being single any less but it's our job to do this as parents to have a vision for this in fact i'll be honest This morning, I feel for the women. I I literally, when I was preparing for this, I I, I wept. I have a daughter. I wept for her. I, I, I wept for all the single women. Where are the men? I'm serious. Where are the men who have a vision for marriage? And the guts and the courage to enter a covenant where I'll stake my life on that covenant. And men keep thinking, well, I need to find a beauty queen. How selfish is that? Or they're looking for someone who's perfect. It's kind of like I tell people who are looking for the perfect church. Don't go there because you're going to spoil it. I'm telling you, there are hundreds of ladies in this church who are marriageable. It's not about finding the right one. It's about having the courage, courage and the vision to be the right one. I thought i even push this further. The greatest earthly thing that we can ever do as men, and I'm talking earthly here, it's to become a covenant maker. It's to enter a covenant with a woman that you are willing to die for and to create a home that's filled with sons and daughters. That's God. He's a covenant maker. He's a covenant keeper. He made us so we could enlarge his family. Our legacy as men, I'm convinced of this the older I get, it's not going to be fame, it's not going to be accomplishments, it's not going to be our money and material possessions. Our legacy is going to be about us bringing sons and daughters into the world who love Jesus. And Lord willing that those sons and daughters would be grandchildren who would love Jesus. That's God's vision for you men. Are there any spiritual fathers in this room, grandpas in this room, who would be happy to mentor a 20 something in this? Would you please stand? We need you guys. We need you. Okay, do you see these guys? Guys, find them. Say, teach me. Bennett, are you listening? <laughs> Shoot, I promised him. Go ahead, sit down, guys. that I won't say his name this morning. <laughs> A word to the marrieds. As I read this thing and studied it and pondered it this, this week, I, I realized that that this song gives expression to the loftiness of marriage. And, and marriage is awesome reality. Marriage is so much more than just a function. God made marriage for ultimate joy and pleasure between lover and beloved. Our marriages are to be a spectacle that should strike our world with this sense of wonder. It should cause gawkers to gawk with just speechless amazement. Our kids literally need to be saying to us sometimes, Mom and Dad, stop it. Sometimes Kate will say it. Mom and Dad, that's gross. It's no wonder the next generation doesn't want to get married. They haven't seen any marriages that inspire them. And see, so Song of Songs is here to show us that, that, that marriage is to be spicy with love and arousal and desire and anticipation and longing and sexual intimacy. It's here to rouse our marriages out of monotony and functionality to a place of intense intimacy between lover and beloved. God made marriage for joy and pleasure. In fact, wives, can your, can, can your heart right now Say of your husband, verse one, which is verse two, the very first verse. Can your heart say it? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love-making is more delightful than wine. And husbands, are you a, a one-woman man? Seriously. I mean, there's a place in chapter 7 where the husband is expressing his intense desire for his wife, and as he's doing it, she can't help but just interrupt them. And look at what she says. He ends and he says, And your mouth is like the best of wine. And she interrupts him. She says, May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. She says, I belong to my beloved. And his desire is for me. His desire is for me. And our wives say that today about us. His desire is for me. I want to switch directions. We've been looking at this book at a horizontal level. I want to end this morning by looking at this book from a vertical level. Because yeah, this is a book about lover and beloved, but it's also about God's intense love and desire for his people. If you read the Bible, so often the Bible speaks about God as lover. It it describes him as a husband. It describes his people as as the beloved, as as the very bride of God. In fact, it was the Jewish people who first interpreted the Song of Songs as an allegory of the love affair between God and his people. In fact, our most famous sage, Rabbi Akiva, who lived just a generation after Jesus, once said, the entire universe is unworthy of the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel by God. And he says, the Bible is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And see, this is why it is the song of all songs. It's the greatest of songs because it's more than just an expression of love between a husband and a wife. It's the expression of the greatest lover, God, for his most treasured possession, his people. And when we read our Bibles, we, we see that throughout the story, we see this lover God who, who relentlessly pursues his beloved, his people. He woos her. He enters a covenant with her. He stakes his very life on that covenant. We just got out of this whole series where we, where we studied the book of Exodus, and, and we saw how this is uh, the defining moment for, 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 for the story of redemption. It's God taking the least of all peoples out of bondage, setting them free. But it's more than that. It's a story of a lover of God taking his beloved, his people, to a mountain, his mountain, for marriage. It's at that mountain where God calls his people You're my sigula. And as their husband, He becomes everything to them. He becomes their savior, their redeemer, their protector, their provider. And Israel then is called to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, over and over again, God says, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. And that word for know is the Hebrew word yada. And yada is so much more than just this intellectual knowing. Because it's the same word that's used in places like, and Adam knew Eve. And beget Cain. This is intimate knowing. God says, "Know me." So early in the story, already before the time of Christ, someone decided that on the Shabbat of Passover week, that the Song of Songs was to be read in the synagogues to remind God's people. This is God's passionate, spousal love for you. And so they listened to the song of uh, songs and they heard like 2 verse 16 where it says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And then the converse, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And they listened to how God spoke of his bride in in chapter 4 verse 7. Where he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Or verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart. I mean, that's lofty language to describe God's great love for his people. And see, while we need to be careful to not individualize this and make this all about me... Because I am not the bride of Christ, we collectively are the bride of Christ, and our relationship with Him is in no way erotic, which so much of the modern worship music I think has forgotten. But there is an intimacy, something intensely, intensely personal. In fact, when I read this song, it just reminds me that this whole Christian thing, it's so much more than just a cold doctrine. It's so much more than laying out a ritual that we just perform on Sundays. That knowing God is more than just an intellectual exercise in being right. That knowing God, it's full of mystery. It's full of beauty. I am His. He is mine. And that this relationship is the most awesome thing in the world. And it's a relationship that ought to leave the world gawking in speechless awe as they see the incredible love that God has for us and the love that we have for him. In fact, if I'm single this morning, it should just still leave me satisfied. Because even though my heart may long for the earthly expression of this love, even the best marriage and the best sex in the best marriage is but a drop in the bucket compared to I am His and He is mine. Now, when you read this book, I'm just going to tell you right now, one of the confusing things about this book is, is who is the He? Who is the lover? Some say it's Solomon. The problem with that is it doesn't describe Solomon. Instead, the lover is described as this simple shepherd who meets kind of his the love of his life while pasturing his flocks in some field. That doesn't sound like Solomon. And then it describes how lover and beloved are apart. And how she in her waiting, how she's full of longing. She sees him at one point in 2 verse 8, off in the distance running. She just longs for him. In in verse 1 of chapter 3, you see how she dreams of him and dreams of the day in which they're going to get together. And then you keep reading the book and, 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 and you see that it happens. She's out in her vineyard, she sees a caravan approaching, and the cry goes forth It's King Solomon. And then someone runs to her and says, he's asking for you. But why would the king be asking for her, a simple, unknown, poor girl? And then she realizes that the king had wooed her by disguising himself as a shepherd, a humble shepherd. And he came in lowliness to win her heart before he revealed his true identity Kierkegaard tells this awesome parable called The King and the Maiden. He says, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by the love of a humble maiden. Melted for the love of a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom, And he was thinking, how can I declare my love for her? Because in an odd sort of way, his kingliness kind of tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist, for no one dared resist him. But would she really love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Would she really be happy at his side? And how could he really know for sure? And so the king convinced that he would win the maiden... The maiden's heart, without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend to her clothed as a beggar. He approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. And this was not just a disguise, the king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love, to win hers. That's the Song of Songs. And that's the story of the whole Bible. Of the greatest of kings falling in love with a humble maiden. But to win us, to truly win our hearts, he had to disguise himself and become poor like us. And he clothed himself as a simple shepherd. He left his throne. It became the equal of even the lowliest. And if you want to know how much he loves us, the good shepherd lays down his life the one he loves it's in this song of songs that Christ sings to us I invite you to my my banqueting table and my banner over you is love That's what communion is. It's not just this rote thing that we nonchalantly go through. It's the invitation of the king to feast with him, to be in relationship with him. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding feast to say what I'm about and why I've come is to win you over, to woo you over and to bring you to myself. Our God is a covenant maker. He is a covenant keeper. He is a lover. He made us for love. And his love isn't just dutiful. It's spousal. It's intensely passionate. And My question this morning is, do you know this love? This morning I invite you those who are in the marriage, to the banqueting table. Because we are in a marriage. And, and, And what it means from our end is this simple. It means what any spouse says back to their spouse, with all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. And like any marriage, we don't always feel gushy. We don't always feel this intense desire. Love isn't about our feelings and desires only. It's about giving all that I am and all that I have. It means that we have no other lovers. It means that our bridegroom, Christ, has our whole heart. God made us for himself and our souls will forever be restless until we rest in his arms. I invite you this morning to his banqueting table. It's sat, maybe this morning God's putting it on your heart because you're married to come up here with your spouse and literally to, to renew your marriage through the partaking of the table, that, the feast that God invites us to. Or maybe today you've walked a long way away from God. Maybe there are several other lovers in your lives. There's things that you need to repent of. I invite you to his banqueting table. I invite you, if you can say or want to say or want to want to want to say, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. If you feel like you need to wash and repent... Come. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's pray. So, God, in these next moments, we're just going to get real with our hearts. We're going to get real with our lives. And most importantly, we're going to get real with you. Maybe this morning, there are some marriages who need to get real with each other. God, would you just lead us and guide us, and may we have courageous hearts to respond to whatever you put in our hearts.